normal, uh, turn with me to John chapter number 6. We're going to take the Lord's Supper first. While the uh, parents are going over with their kids, they'll be able to get back in time to, to partake with us. Um, so, I look out amongst the audience and I see just a bunch of church families, family members and faithful attenders, so I don't feel like we have to go through the whole journey. Um, this is a great opportunity for us to reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us, um, the bread being the picture of the body of Christ and his suffering on our behalf, the cup being a picture of the new covenant, a covenant of grace, uh, a covenant that um, moves us from the covenant of works, which was built around what we could accomplish, to the covenant of grace, which is built on what Christ Jesus accomplished on our behalf. And uh, it is a gift. The new covenant is a gift. It's not something that you earn or merit or deserve. It's something that God gives you freely, and he bestows it upon you. And so we are allowed the opportunity to partake of these two elements that we would call um, reminders. And there's no power within them. They're just reminders so that we can be uh, constantly aware of what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to pray over the elements and invite you to come and take a cup and a wafer and then return to your seat. I'll read a short passage of Scripture, and we'll partake together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Uh, it's a special day, especially for Darren and his family, as they remember what you, Lord Jesus Christ, accomplished in the cross and how the cross impacted their family forever. And uh, each one of us has a story to tell. We have a testimony of the powerful grace of God your grace bestowed on us through the sufficient sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ and the glorious indwelling of your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for that. We thank you for these elements that are meant to remind us of that um, event and meant to remind us of the power and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. So please, Lord God, help us to be thoughtful of the bread as we partake of it, being the body um, a picture of the body, that uh, your body, Lord Jesus, that suffered and died in our place. And then the cup, may it remind us of the uh, eternally sealed covenant that God has made with us, that all those who will place their faith in Christ will be given this marvelous gift of salvation, this eternal gift of salvation. And may these truths be relevant and prevalent in our hearts and minds as we partake of this communion. Um, of these elements and give you the thanks and the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. So I would just invite you, um, those on that side for that table and those over here, and if you would just uh, take a wafer and a, um, uh, some juice and return to your seat, we'll read a passage of scripture. So, All right, I'm going to read uh, to you this morning from John chapter number six. Just uh, listen if you would and um, just take in what the Lord has, is saying to us. Scripture says in verse 25 of John 6, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, is the Son of, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father hath set this seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he hath sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he gives me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that every one who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What a wonderful passage of Scripture, isn't it? To think of the glorious gift of Christ to us and he being the bread and being the cup and being satisfying and fulfilling. The Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us this ceremony that we might remember him. He gave us the bread. Um, I don't have it to do with you this morning, but I'm going to do it with you figuratively. And so he tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that uh, we are after giving thanks, we are to partake of the bread. So let's do that together now. And then he tells us in the same manner, after taking of the bread and after supper, he took the cup, which is the new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. And he says to the disciples, let us partake of this cup. And he tells us that as long as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And uh, we know he's coming, isn't, don't we? One of the great aspects of, of, the, of the communion is not just what we remember, but it's what we look forward to. It's what we anticipate. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to come back and take his people home and all those who are a part of his family will go to be with him forever in heaven. And that's our desire, isn't it, this morning? Our desire as Christians is, is that as many as we can possibly share the gospel with and get them into that place where they see Christ as being um, sufficient and significant and they embrace him and, and humble themselves before him. That's what we're here for. And um, may this be a reminder of our... Uh, calling and our privilege to share Christ with, with the world around us. I've been thoughtful, and you can turn with you can turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13. That's where we'll be for, for the message this morning. But I've been thoughtful lately just about, with all the stuff that's been going on, I've just been thinking about Matthew 5, where the Lord says that you are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the world. And just been asking God to help me see the importance during these challenging times to really set out to be that light, to really set out to be that salt. Um, we're in challenging times and difficult times, and uh, 
times of struggle and everybody is facing very, very similar challenges. The challenges that we face have really brought us all almost to that, to that same level. Like there's no highs and lows. It's like everybody is dealing with, this, with these struggles in the same way. And uh, I think of the Lord's admonition, if you will, in Matthew 5 in the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a comment, right? And, uh, and that's, where we, that's where we're at. That's what we're called to. And it's a great privilege to be, um, it's a great privilege to be given that light, right? We're just a reflection of the light that the Lord has shined on us. But also, we're also given the privilege of shining forth that light. You guys know this morning that there's no greater joy and no greater privilege than to shine forth the light of Christ. There isn't, anything, there isn't anything more important. There isn't anything more significant in life. You couldn't work for a better boss. You couldn't have a better job or a better responsibility. There's nothing more significant in this life than the shining forth the glory of Christ, especially in times of challenge. And so we get to do that. That's what we're called to, and that's what we're privileged to as well. That being said, we're going to, Hebrews 13 is going to be our main um, passage this morning. If you'll remember correctly, as we've walked through this um, book, the main theme of Hebrews is perseverance. It is, it is those who have come, those Hebrew people, for the most part, he's dealing with Hebrew people, those who have come to faith in Christ, but are, are, are struggling with, with wanting to move back into some of the ceremonial, sacrificial systems that have so, seemingly brought them some security or made them feel secure. And um, he's a challenging them to stay firm in the faith. And then on several occasions, he brings up the fact that just because a person professes to be a follower of Christ doesn't make them one. He makes it clear on several occasions in Hebrews that there are people who, are, who have, quote unquote, left the Judaic system and, and placed their faith in the new Christian system, but, but there was something lacking in it. It might maybe just be a head ascent, like, yeah, I think that might be true, or I might try that for a season, and ultimately it's not really in their heart. Someone once said, the distance from heaven to hell is 18 inches, and the question was asked, well, what, what do you mean 18 inches? It's the difference between your head and your heart. It's the difference between having the gospel in your head and having the gospel in your heart. And, 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 and our challenge to you and the Apostle Paul's challenge or the author's challenge to the people of Hebrews is, is make sure that you have it in your heart. And make sure that it's something that's, that's real to you, that has, has uh, been life-changing to you. Darren mentioned in his testimony this morning, and I think 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it very, very well, that when you become a follower of Christ, you're no longer the same. You're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when you, when you see testimonies in Scripture of people who get, get saved, truly get converted to Christ, you see, you see um, over and over again, you see proclamations of the change that took place in their life. They're not the same anymore. They don't look at the world the same. They don't look at life the same. They don't look at their family the same. They don't look at their friends. They don't look at anything the same. And life has completely been altered for them by the power of Christ and 
by the uh, fact that God's Holy Spirit lives inside of them. And so we want to make sure that he's in our hearts, not just in our heads. In this passage of Scripture, in this portion, as we come to the close, uh, the author is really pressing home this idea of persevering. And we talked about last week, he gives them three strong challenges about if the church does not persevere, then there's going to be things that are going to die. Important things, significant things, such as the fear of God is going to die. The unity of the church is going to die. The, um, the uh, uh, contentment, the contented life dies when people's faith in Christ dies. When the life of faith dies, lots of other things die. And, I, and I, as I was reading and studying for last week's message, I thought of the fact that that's where we're living. That's where we're living. We're living in a culture where the church is declining. I don't think that we would have too much argument that for the most part the church is declining. And, and the fear of God is declining as seen through morals. The unity of the church is declining as seen through how we love each other or how we don't love each other. And, and also the contentment of the church is also, and the contentment of the world is also declining. There's probably not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think some discontented thoughts. I wish it could be this way, or I wish I could have this, or we see something that somebody else has, and we think, oh, I wish that we could do it this way, and there's not a contentment there. Remember this, folks. Christ Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, right? So when we partake of Christ, we will never thirst again or we'll never hunger again, right? Not because everything in the world goes exactly like we want it to, but because we have Christ, Satisfaction doesn't come because everything goes your way. Satisfaction comes because you have Jesus. Jesus is the sufficient one, right? He's the satisfying one. So what we want to do is understand that contentment, fear of God, and unity in the church are, are, are important. The church is to promote those things, stand for those things, and they're to be found in Christ. That's the change that the Lord brings to us. And when we forsake those things, the world suffers, not just the church. In verse 7, um, the author is going to start talking about leadership and the importance of leadership. Leadership is something that is central to the Word of God. You, uh, in our culture today, leadership is, is, is not seen in a positive light in many ways. It's seen in a negative light. But in God's economy, in a biblical economy, leadership is very, very important. Leadership is, is significant. Whether you're talking about Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness or leading them out of Egypt or leading them or Joshua leading them into the promised land or Abraham leading his family or the apostle Paul and the other apostles leading the church or fathers leading their homes or government leading um, the communities that we live in or um, uh, pastors and teachers leading the homes. Leadership is, really, is a really significant part of the, of, the, of God's economy. It's not set up to be, to be destructive. It's set up to be um, constructive. It's set up to help us to persevere. Leadership is set up to help us persevere. It's all throughout the scriptures. And I think we would have to acknowledge that our perspective of leadership today, and, and maybe rightfully so, has declined because maybe leadership has failed us. Maybe leadership has failed you. 
But leadership is important when it comes to if you're going to persevere in the, in the faith, leadership is going to be important. That's why the author here puts this here. He doesn't come to the end of his book writing all about persevering in a very, very hard situation and then say, listen, leadership matters because leadership doesn't really matter. It's not why he does it. He does it because leadership does matter. And, and, and it's not just leadership that matters, but, but he, he emphasizes in these next several verses our attitude towards leadership. And he, again, if you study the scriptures, you'll find leadership from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll also find people that hate leadership from Genesis to Revelation. And most of the time, when you have, you have people who refuse to, to um, be under leadership, it causes conflict. It causes problems. And uh, it's, it's, it's consistent. It's constant. It's in the church. It's in the, it's in the world. It's, it's everywhere. And God has set up certain organizations and certain organisms and certain people to lead. To lead. And we have, a re- we have a responsibility on how we respond to those things that's going to help create proper unity and growth and maturity and help us persevere in the faith. So that's what the... Um, the author of Hebrews is going to press in on. So I just want to press in on it with you. I think we want to persevere in the faith, right? I think we would all shake our heads yes that we want to persevere in the faith. Well, the author of Hebrews is just giving us a, a means by which we can be helped in doing that. So let's read. Now follow along with me as I read these uh, verse um, 7 down to verse 18 and um, matter of fact, I'm not going to, I'll, I'll read, I'm going to read and stop. And meditate, okay, instead of reading it and then going back and reading it again because we're just going to unpack it together. The first thing that he says, he gives us three instructions really for how we should be, what our attitude should be towards leaders. He says, first of all, remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. The emphasis here is on the idea of being thoughtful of them. Uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 6 gives us the same term where the Lord says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And uh, in other words, the the fact that the Lord considers man, the Lord thinks about man. And when you think about that, we, we, can, we, can, we can put the Lord's, the, the Lord's um, continual thoughtfulness towards man is, is what he's referring to here that we should have towards our leaders. If we're going to persevere in the faith, it's almost like he's saying this. If you're going to persevere in the faith, keep your mind focused on Hebrews 11. Keep your mind focused on David. Keep your mind focused on Daniel. Keep your mind focused on Moses. Keep your mind focused on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Keep your mind focused on Paul. Keep your mind focused on these leaders that have gone before you. Keep your mind focused on them. Consider them. Think about them. Meditate on them. Okay? Don't meditate on all of the things, all of those who have failed in the faith. Meditate on those who have succeeded in the faith. Meditate on those who have made it to the end of the road. Remember your leaders. Meditate on them. Think about them. Consider them in the same way that the Lord thinks about you and considers you. That he will never leave you or go back. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's always there with you. He's always thoughtful of you. He's telling us that same attitude needs to be towards our leaders. Remember your leaders. And then he says, those who spoke to you the word of God. In other words, he's making a distinction here for spiritual leaders. Leaders who are placed over you, 
in the Old Testament sense from the Jewish people uh, like David and Moses. And in the New Testament sense, you have the apostles and you have pastors and teachers and leaders in the church. And we go back to Ephesians 4. The Bible says he has given some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, some uh, uh, evangelists and, and teachers. And these are given to the church. These are gifts to the church for uh, leading the church. He says, he says to these are the ones that you're to think about and consider. And he goes on and says, consider the outcome of their way of life. This word just means to take a double, it's almost like uh, emphasizing remember, but, but putting it to another level. Like, take a second look at the outcome of their life, at the outcome of their way of life. Is it not true that if we looked at Noah, use Noah as an example, is it not true that if we looked at Noah during the 120 years of him preaching, we might look at him as being somewhat crazy? Anybody think that might be true, right? But if we look at Noah at the end of the story, after he's in the boat and everybody else in the world has died and him and his family are in the boat, he built this crazy huge boat so that he could put all the animals onto it. If we looked at him in the season of his faith, we might think him to be crazy. But what he's telling us here is look at the outcome of their life. Look at the outcome of their faith. If we look at Noah, we say, wow, he was a great success, right? Everybody would have called him a great failure in the moment of faith. But when they look back at his faith, they would say he was a great success. Abraham and Sarah, the same thing. They might have thought them crazy if they're going around saying, hey, we're going to have a baby. And they're like, yeah, right, you're going to have a baby. You're 190 years old. That's not going to happen. But we look back at the outcome of their faith and we see what? It happened. It's true. It really happens. It really happened to be true. And, and we can go on and on. But he says, consider the outcome. Consider the end of their way of faith. Consider the outcome. So it's almost like he's saying, look at those people who have died. Who have, who, have, who have stood firm in the faith, who have maybe been laughed at and mocked in the faith, but look at the outcome of their life. Look at the fruits and the results of their life. Look at the end of their faith. And then it says, and imitate their faith. And this word means to, to mimic it, you know, to, to do the same thing. I'm not telling you to go out and build a big boat and tell people the flood's going to come, right? But I'm telling you that the faith that he lived off of, that's what he wants us to mimic. He doesn't tell us to mimic their theology. He doesn't tell us to mimic their actions. He tells us to mimic their faith. The way that these guys acted in chapter number 11, you're to, you're to mimic, you're to live out faith in the same, we're to live out faith in the same way that they did. We're to live in that faith. And we look, at, we look at all the stories of Hebrews 11, and it's just replete with people who lived out their faith. What about the people who, had, who were sawn in two because they, wouldn't not live, they would not uh, denounce the Lord? What about those people? We're to remember them. We're to remember the outcome of their faith. Where are they now? Where are they now? They're in heaven with God, aren't they? 
We're to remember that. That's the important piece of it. It's not to remember the suffering that they went to. It's to remember the outcome of their suffering. It's to remember the outcome of their perseverance. It's to remember the end of their perseverance. We may not want to be Noah being laughed at by the entire world for saying there's coming this big rainfall, right? We may not want to be him, but when we see the fact that the flood came and all the world perished, we may want to be him. Some of us need to think about that when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. We may not want to be the one that gets laughed at and mocked because we share the gospel with somebody, but when we consider the end of it, we may want to be that person. You may want to be the person that says to somebody, if you, don't, if you do not become a follower of Christ, you are going to face God's eternal wrath. You may want to be that person if, if you consider the end but if you've considered the, the now and the pain that it's going to be, you may not want to be that person. Consider the end of their faith and imitate it. And then he says this, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I was reading some commentaries this week on this verse, and the, the, the greatest comment was, why is this here? And the answer is simply, he is the greatest example to us. He is the greatest example. When you talk about remember your leaders, Jesus Christ is the leader. He is the one that we're to remember. He is the one that we're to mimic. He is the one that we're to, to, um, to live for and to follow after. And he's always consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never change. I think of what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians um, in verse 2, the Bible says it's, uh, moreover, it is required of a steward that a man be found what? A man be found faithful. The greatest calling in a Christian's life is that we be faithful. And who is our greatest example of that? Who is our leader that would lead us in that path? It is Christ. It is, did Christ live on a roller coaster ride emotionally? He didn't, did he? He lived solidly. He lived stably. He lived, he, lived, um, he, he, he lived consistently. That's what he calls us to. That's what he calls us to. And sometimes you have to remember other people. You have to remember maybe Daniel. Maybe you're questioning whether you should pray in public. And then you think about, well, what about Daniel? Got thrown in the lion's den for it. Praying in public, right? But guess what happened at the end of the day? Not only did he come out of the lion's den alive, but lots of people in that community got saved. Remember those who have gone before us. And Christ Jesus is the greatest example of that, the same yesterday and today and forever. And then he goes on in verse number 9. He's going to unfold this further. He says, Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings or by diverse and strange doctrines. Um, the verse just means many or, or multiple. It's like people who are constantly throwing out new things, new doctrines coming up with. We live in a culture today that everybody wants the new thing. They want to find the new exciting thing, especially in, the, in our younger generation, looking for that new thing spiritually. Listen, stop looking for the new thing spiritually and start taking the old thing spiritually. There's nothing new under the sun. You're not going to find it. You're going to find a manufacturing of the devil if you're not careful. Take the old book 
and read it and study it and take what it says practically and take what it says literally and take what it, take what it says on the surface. Stop going, so, stop going so deep into it that you make up your own stuff. Some of the things that we hear, even in the Christian realm, is, is diverse and strange teachings. Because somebody's trying to find something new. They want to be unique. They want to get a, a, a hand up on somebody else. We need the basics, folks. We need to get back to the basics. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that he was concerned, I believe it was for the Corinthian church, that they would lose sight of the basics of Christ, the simplicity of Christ. There are going to be things around, leaders, teachers, whatever, that are going to teach strange and, and diverse doctrines. It says, avoid them. Do not be led astray from them. And he goes on to say, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by food. In other words, something about this strange and, and uh, weird doctrine had to do with food. It was probably dietary habits. People were maybe being taught that you could get close to God by doing some special dietary thing. Or maybe, and, 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 and we can throw anything we want into that, into that picture. It's, it's basically saying that there's something outside that you can do to strengthen your inside. But what we understand is that the, the inside is strengthened by the Spirit, not strengthened by doing things in the flesh. That's, that's legalism. Legalism says you change the inside by changing the outside. Grace says you change the inside and then the outside will change as a result of it. We're to be strengthened in grace, not to be strengthened by foods. He says, which have not been to, benefited those who are devoted to them. Then in verse 10 he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, which is a reference to the tabernacle, get this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What altar is he talking about? I believe, in, I believe that what the author is referring to is what we just participated in. That those who serve the tabernacle, those who serve the ceremonial Christianity that is, that is make sacrifices, do do these things and you'll be brought into favor with God, that they have no right to eat from the Lord's table. They have no right, to, and I'm not saying that they have no right to eat communion. I'm saying this, they have no right to eat the body and the blood of Christ, as mentioned to us in John chapter number 6. Those who hold to, an, to a fleshly way of having favor with God by external actions are not, they, have, they are not prepared, they are not ready to eat of the body and blood of Christ. I'm going to tell you something this morning, folks. When you eat of the body of Christ, your outsides will change. But you don't, you don't change your outsides so that you can eat of the body and blood of Christ. There are those who serve an altar, that serve a tent, that makes them incapable of partaking of the altar. There are those who serve works that make them unworthy of partaking of Christ. One of the greatest enemies of the gospel of Christ is an is a alternative gospel that says you can gain God's favor by your works. I'll say this to you as well. One of the other enemies of the gospel of Christ is that you can serve Christ without having the changes that take place because of the gospel. It's, 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 it's both and. When you're changed on the inside, you're changed on the outside. It's not an option. 
but you can never change the inside by changing the outside. He goes on to say in verse number 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So in other words, there's a sacrifice that's brought into the Holy of Holies. It's mentioned in Leviticus chapter number 6 and verse 30. And that sacrifice was not to be eaten. It was to be, the blood was to be shed. The blood was to be taken in and put on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the people. And then the carcass of that animal was to be taken outside of the camp so that it could be burnt, right? It was a picture of rejection. That animal was a symbol of sin, right? So they would take that animal, they would shed its blood, which is a picture of, of, of justification. It was a picture of, of deliverance from that sin. And then that carcass was not eaten. That carcass was taken outside of the camp and it was burnt. It was destroyed. It was seen as rejected, right? So it didn't bring them any satisfaction other than temporary satisfaction of which they could not partake. Well, watch this. So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. So in other words, we know that Jesus Christ was sacrificed outside of the gate. In other words, Jesus Christ's whole sacrifice was built around the rejection. It was built around rejection. The rejection of the Jewish people, the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of him as the Messiah. But he says, verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him where? Let us go to him outside of the camp. What is the picture of outside of the camp? What is the picture of being outside of the camp? It was rejection. It was rejection. He said, let us go to the place of rejection. Let us go to the place where the world will not see us in a favorable light. Let us go outside of the camp. Let us go outside of the camp where we can receive Jesus, right? And get this. John 6, we can partake of him. It's so different than the sacrifices that were made. The, the, the blood was symbolic of bringing redemption or forgiveness for a season, but there was no satisfaction. There was no partaking of it. It was taken outside of the camp and it was burned. Jesus is different because Jesus Christ suffered outside of the camp completely. So we are to go to him outside of the camp and we're to partake of him as the body as his body and blood are that which brings salvation to us. It's not referring to it in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense, that we partake of the body of blood of Christ when we are saved, when we partake of him in a spiritual way. So we're to go outside of the camp. We're to go to outside. He says, he doesn't stop there. He says, and bear the reproach that he endured. Bear the reproach that Christ endured. Go outside of the camp. Go where Christ is being laughed at and mocked and ridiculed. Go to that place where you will see Jesus, where you can experience Jesus, where you can be gratified and satisfied by Jesus. Sometimes the problem with us as Christians is we want to be in the camp. And the camp messes up our Christianity. The camp messes up everything. We need to be willing to go outside of the camp where we're not accepted, where we're not liked, where we get laughed at for 120 years for preaching that Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to destroy the world with a fervent heat. That's what the Bible teaches us. Listen, the flood was minimal to what's going to happen at the end of days. And we're literally supposed to be Noah. 
Are we Noah? Would we be counted faithful Noahs? That Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to judge the world in a similar way and destroy everything and everyone who doesn't have Christ? Who is not in the ark? Do we believe that? I think we believe that. I think we believe that. I have no doubt that Noah believed it. Do you guys think Noah believed it? You think he would have built a crazy big boat and preached for 120 years of something that he didn't believe in? You think the apostles would have given up their life for something that they didn't believe in? Do we believe this morning that Jesus Christ is coming back and that literally the signs of this day are built around that reality? And that we don't have to build a boat, thank God. Jesus Christ built a boat. Jesus Christ is the boat. Get on. Get on the boat of faith in Christ. And share that boat with other people. It's been convicting to me lately, just the, even in my own life, just the lack of, of, the lack of um, backbone to just tell the gospel to somebody. It's the greatest news in the world. We've got to go outside the camp. We've got to be willing to go outside the camp where people are going to laugh at us. They're going to mock us. They're going to say, you're crazy. Crazy. Paul said he was called a fool for Christ's sake. Go on. For here, for here speaking of here in this life, we have no lasting city. In this life, we have, no, we have no eternal city. Nothing in this life is going to be forever. But we seek another city that is to come. Would you guys say this morning that you're living for another city that is to come? That's what we need. We need to be living for an eternal kingdom. Not a temporary one, but an eternal one. He goes on to say, Verse 15, through him, then let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, don't be ashamed of the name of Christ. And then in verse 16, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then go back to our general, our general thought. What is it? It is remember your leaders. In other words, he gives us this, this dissertation, if you will, almost, of, of what we should be doing. But he starts it off with leadership. In other words, follow those who do these things. Pick somebody that's doing these things and follow them. And think about them and watch them. And maybe we only can find them in the Bible today, but that's okay. Pick somebody out in the Bible that you can follow. Pick a historical figure out, like somebody that has gone many years ago that just had a testimony of faithfulness and follow their life and read their story and get to know them. When the, when, listen to me, folks. When the going gets tough and things get challenging, you're going to need something more than yourself. And yes, you're going to need Christ, but he tells us here, have somebody to think about and to consider. He doesn't stop there, but remember your leaders. And then he says, secondly, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are seeking, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be to no advantage to you. He says, secondly, to obey them. 
and submit to them, to, to surrender to them is kind of the idea of it. As you, as you see and think about and meditate on them, then, then, then obey them, su- submit to them, surrender, surrender your will to their will. Because they're watching over your souls. And then he says, um, let them do it with joy and not with groaning. In other words... In spiritual leadership, it can be very challenging sometimes. It can be very challenging. It can be very difficult in in life. And what he's telling them is, he's saying to them, don't make it difficult. Don't make spiritual leadership difficult. Don't make it challenging. Make it easy. Make it easy. And he he says, because this is for their benefit, this is for your benefit, basically, at the end. He says, "Um, this this would be to your advantage, or it's no advantage to you to make it difficult on them. And think about it from this perspective. Like a coach. You might have a coach, right? And that coach is doing his best to teach you and doing his best to make you the best athlete that you can. If you're an athlete that listens to what the coach says and does what the coach says and learns from the coach, then you could be a pretty good athlete and the coach would be able to teach you and instruct you and help you to get to be a better athlete, right? On the other hand, you might be one of those athletes that complains about everything the coach does. The coach can never do anything right. I can't believe he asked me to do this. I can't believe he's doing this now. I can't believe he talked to me with that tone of voice. I can't believe he did this to me. And you can see how that, that, that type of mentality, it doesn't change the fact that he's your coach. What it does is it changes the fact that he cannot coach you and enjoy himself. So what he's saying here is, is, is be submissive, be, be, uh, be submissive, be obedient to your spiritual leaders to, to, to make it easy on them not to make it hard on them. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 kind of tells us the same thing. He says um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we ask you, brothers, to uh, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, Make sure that no one pays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And 1 Thessalonians is all about end times things. The, the emphasis is this. Listen, this is not saying to, to, um, to be walked on like a, like a stepping stool. The Lord gives leaders instructions about not lording it over the people. This is not referring to that. It's referring to be, be submissive. In this time where God is... Where God is is, is wanting you to persevere and it's challenging times, then, then, then listen and learn and grow from those who he's put over you in leadership. And Mark Dever says this, he says, being submissive to leadership is never, so, is never something that is ultimately earned. It is something that is ultimately gifted. I thought that was interesting because I think sometimes we look at it and we say, well, when he earns it, I'll be submissive. Or when she earns it, I'll be submissive or I'll listen. And, and his comment is, is that no one will ever earn it. Christ earned it, but we can't earn it because we're all faulty, aren't we? We're all frail. And if you're looking for someone that's going to earn it, you're going to never find someone that you can submit to and follow. It's not something that is earned. As he said, it's something that is gifted, something that is given to us. Another theologian that was an un, unknown, I didn't, couldn't even remember his name, but, but he said, he said, um, he said something that was really good, and it's, <laughs> it's in my mind, but it's not like, uh, it's not coming out of my mouth. What did he say? 
Oh, man. Forget it. Um, what did he say? It was good. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it'll come later. I'll tell you next week. So, be, so we're to so so in this in this battle for perseverance, we're to be we're to be we're to be listening and we're to be considering our leaders that God has put over us. We're to be obedient to them. We're to be submissive to them to 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 help them do the job that they're doing, because they are in a position of authority by God. Okay, that's just that's just it's going to be helpful for the leader and for you as a person. And then the last thing, verse number eighteen says, "Pray for them, pray for us." And, and ultimately, he goes on to say, "For we are sure that we have a, a, we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you more earnestly to do this, in order that we might be restored to you this, all the sooner." The last thing he says is, "Pray for your leaders." Did you, did you guys know that your leaders are flawed? They're 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 not perfect. They need help. I mean, the the author here says, "Pray," because we desire to we desire to do what we do with a pure conscience. We desire to do what we do with the right heart. We desire to do the right things, but, but, we, but we're going to be faulty. We're going to be weak in moments. We're not going to, have, we're not going to always uh, do what, what people might think is the right thing to do. We might not always act in a perfect way. And so the last thing that he says is to, is to pray for your leaders, to, to hold them up before the Lord. And... Uh, and and, and, and pray for them, pray for their weaknesses, pray for their faults, pray for their failures, pray that the Lord would give them leadership over a, a, a good, right leadership, um, uh, appropriate leadership. Pray for them, hold them up before the Lord. And uh, because in the end, your leaders, your coaches, spiritual coaches, and so I'll, I'll refer, I think, I think this is somewhat of a coachy passage. The whole 13 is kind of coachy. I think, think about it from that perspective, that your coaches are going to help you. They may not always be the most pleasant things, but they're going to help you. They're going to help you not become a better athlete, but they're going to help you become a better faith person. They're going to help you persevere in the faith. And is it important? Is it important that we persevere in the faith? Is it? It is important that we persevere in the faith. And we need, according to the author of Hebrews, we need someone to go with us. We need someone to lead us and guide us and direct us into a walk of faith, into a persevering walk of faith, because things are going to get difficult and things are going to get challenging. So that's my prayer for us this morning, is that we have, we have leaders. We have leaders in this church. We have leaders in life, spiritual leaders, that we would remember those three simple principles. If I want to persevere in the faith, I'm going to need to have somebody coaching me through the steps. I'm going to need to have somebody yelling at me when I'm rounding that last corner and going into the final stretch. I'm going to need them to yell at me and say, hey, lift your knees and get your arms up and get to the finish line. And don't stop at the finish line, but run through, right? We're going to need that in this time. And if we get to that moment where we're rounding that last corner and we've developed an attitude towards leadership that says, hey, I don't want to think about my leaders. I don't want to obey my leaders. We've got that attitude. It's like kids with parents, right? If they develop that, I don't want to listen to my parents. When they get to be older, it's hard to get them to listen to their parents, right? So develop in your youth an attitude towards leadership that God has put over you. Oh, this is what the other guy said. See, I told you I would remember he said, remember this, we submit to leadership because we're submitting to God. That was good. 
It's like we're, it's not, it's not just that we're submitting to leadership, but we're submitting to leadership because God has told us to submit to leadership. It is ultimately a faith in God that causes us to be obedient to leadership, not necessarily a faith in that person. I thought that was really, I thought that was helpful and valuable. God can remove leaders. God puts leaders in place and he can remove them, right? Without any problems at all. He doesn't need our help. He's got them there for a moment, for a season, for whatever, for a reason. We can learn and grow from them the best that we can and get all that we can. But develop, develop in your spirit an attitude of thinking about them, considering their faith, considering the end of their faith, considering the attitude of their faith. Look to, look to Hebrews 11 and find somebody that's going through what you're going through and say, what did he do and how did he get through it? Because that's a story of victory. Think about them, obey them, and pray for them. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Thank you for the truth that you've given us, Lord. It's so, it's so warm. It's, it's, it brings warmth to my heart to know that I have a God that cares that I persevere, that a God that cares that I get to the end, God that cares that I, I am victorious in Christ, a God that cares about me, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help me to have an attitude towards you and others that you've put into my life uh, that is considerate, that is submissive and obedient, that is, is prayerful and, and can, that I can learn from and grow from and be discipled with. I pray your blessing upon this, your church. Lord, help each one of us to be the people that you want us to be for your glory and by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.